Top of the news this evening is speculation concerning the real facts behind the Department of Health announcement about a radioactive spill supposed to have occurred yesterday at the state nuclear plant. You will die only to live again in a younger body. Then you can tell me if the operation was a success. I could easily kill you now, but I'm determined to have your brain. You're listening to the Really Awful Movies podcast, a celebration of genre cinema. Hi, my name is Chris, and along with Jeff, we talk about movies that aren't really awful at all. Horror, action, kung fu, musicals, post-apocalyptic, women in prison films, and much, much more. From our downtown Toronto headquarters, here's episode 351 of the Really Awful Movies podcast, The Boy Behind the Door. Not to be confused with the 2016 horror film, The Boy. Uh, This one I came to on... Uh, streaming services after reading uh, a bunch of exemplary reviews and um, figuring uh, why not and uh, was hoping it would hold up to uh, my critical scrutiny. I came to this actually via a POV found footage flick that initially seemed enticing called The House October Built, which is a pretty bad title. It almost reminds me of like the house that Ruth built, referring to New York's uh, Yankee Stadium and obviously uh, Babe Ruth helping to build that franchise. So it's like the house that October built, it seemed uh, off-putting title to say the least, but I really, really warmed to, uh, I thought, a really strong effort called Haunt, which is a, a tw- I believe, 2015 uh, Halloween haunted house movie that really stands out uh, apart from some of the others in the space like Fun House and, uh, and whatnot is a really taut and unflinching and really well done low budget horror in, in the spirit uh, of I think the 80s but uh, really updated for modern times so I thought okay House October built uh, poor title, piss poor title accepted. I'm going to launch into that one, uh, and then I was uh, immediately dissuaded by all the uh, jitteriness and the gravel acquiring uh, dizziness inducing uh, swaying of all the cameras. And, uh, and I knew from the get go that even though they had really done a good job uh, recreating um, newscasts. Uh, f- for, to, to further the plot, I realized the entire shebang, the whole shebang would be using this uh, POV sensibility that I, I really could not uh, stomach 90 minutes of, you know, dangling my participles there, but I just thought, okay, this is not something I'm going to be really into. Uh, the boy behind the door comes with uh, critical accolades uh, up the yin-yang, and uh, it's one of these things that's a production by Shudder, and you got to marvel at just how production and uh, distribution channels that uh, overlap in the, with the likes of Amazon Prime and Netflix and now uh, Shudder have just completely upended the movie-going experience. I mean, the Jordan Peele written uh, updating of the Candyman movie for uh, 2021 just launched and in a bunch of theaters uh, across uh, Toronto and across North America and uh, who knows perhaps the world over and my desire to go out and see a movie has been uh, considerably curtailed by uh, the Delta variants and just the 
you know, inconvenience of it all. And I was thinking that it's uh, pretty brilliant for uh, the likes of Shutter and other streaming services to be uh, in-house production teams too, because they are going to really be able to stick it to conventional studios, not to mention distributors and uh, movie houses and uh, the likes of your uh, Cineplex up here and your famous players uh, and all these other chains wherever that happen to exist wherever you are in the world and uh, you know to the extent this was available to me I mean sure I would have preferred to see Candyman but I don't want to put myself uh, at that kind of risk and uh, go out and source a babysitter and go through all this especially since a, a critic uh, I know and uh, really 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 trust actually Chris Alexander uh, from uh, Shock Till You Drop and uh, a, a range of different publications. He, he was decidedly underwhelmed by what was a kind of a scattershot uh, Candyman, and he sort of uh, took uh, umbrage with that one, uh, despite the fact that it's almost being universally lauded, which is uh, something. And I, it makes me almost want to see it more, but um, I'm not entirely sure now about how I'm going to go about it. But obviously, uh, when you treat... Uh, uh, criticism and movie criticism as gospel can only take you so far so all that said the boy behind the door I mean comes with it just uh, tons and tons of heaps he's heaps and heaps of praise and uh, represents almost back-to-back -back films in which I've seen uh, preteen protagonists and it's a different kind of film uh, to to comprehend this one is the work of uh, two directors and uh, that's David Charbonnier and Justin Powell. I forget which one of them did The Gin. And uh, The Gin uh, is, is um, part of uh, folklore from the Middle East, and it's something that really, really resonates in places like uh, Iran and Turkey and, and whatnot. But it's not uh, a particular genre I'm, that, that really, really ca captures me. And you could look at Wishmaster as the most mainstream uh, uh, introduction to North American audiences for this uh, gin, almost a genie type concept. But one of these directors here, either Charbonnier or Powell was responsible for that one. And I was just thinking like, I, I couldn't really come to terms with a uh, two-headed monster directorial team because like famously like Toby Hooper and uh, Steven Spielberg were uh, I mean it, it really depends to what extent one was doing what and who was doing what in the finished product of Poltergeist but at least with that one you could say uh, let's let's say that Steven Spielberg wielded a very heavy influence because of his directorial clout at the time and might have leaned on Toby Hooper in considerable ways to be able to get the finished product out but a two-headed uh, you know, two-headed directorial team is, is a little bit uh, tough to fathom. I mean, the content creators for really awful movies are obviously an author duo, Jeff and I, and uh, even we had uh, some issues uh, trying to collaborate to get a cohesive, uh, I guess, uh, presentation of our, our two books because you always have two slightly different styles and I had to pivot somewhat to be uh, less sort of a glibly one-liner humorous and he, he in order to accommodate his desire to fill the book with more uh, facts and details and uh, production highlights so i think the finished product actually turned out better by one of us uh, seeding to the other but i think depending on how you um, adhere to the uh, auteur school of uh, cinema i'm not sure this really works when it comes to the directors because you have this big production over which you uh, manifest so much control and i can't really think of other than the examples i cite i think i might have um, 
we might have covered a few uh, twin-directed films on the podcast, and none spring to mind, which is, speaks volumes. But I just can't see how you could have, in, in the uh, auteur theory, I guess, limited as it is, when you have one person's vision really should come to the forefront. And you needn't need look farther than uh, our own uh, city... Um, you know, homeboy here, uh, David Cronenberg, for the, the I guess the masterclass version of how the auteur um, plays out in a film. Like that guy has meticulous control over many many elements, and obviously for the better. Now that's not to slight uh, the boy behind the door because there's some incredible performances here, and I should go through the plot briefly. There's a couple of, uh, I mean, speaking of uh, <laughs> the Yankees and baseball, but there's a couple kids, Kevin and Bobby. And uh, they're uh, ball players, uh, baseball players, and they're they're throwing around the uh, the old uh, ball in the middle of the summer. And uh, one of them, I guess, uh, throws it over the other one's head and goes down to the uh, goes down into the uh, ravine to fish it out. And uh, just a warning here, I guess there's going to be spoilers galore in the uh, upcoming uh, comments here for uh, regarding this film. But um, one of them. Uh, gets grabbed and KO'd and ends up in the trunk of the car, almost like uh, the opening scene in Goodfellas or something. But And it's a really jarring and uh, really impactful opening. And um, uh, Charbonnier and Powell have a really good, deft, and unflinching uh, directorial touch to produce, I think, what is really, really uh, an effective uh, kidnapping thriller, if not an altogether uh, straight-ahead horror, although there are horror elements that come to bear later on in the proceedings, but the beginning is just absolutely killer, and uh, one of them is taken hostage when the other one is, uh, you know, uh, able to uh, use his um, savvy and uh, guile in order to rest free of his confines and uh, tries to rescue the other one. Everything uh, takes place at this remote, very, very um, remote, uh, sprawling home that is uh, meant to be, I think, in, in one, either North or South Dakota. I can't recall which one had the oil boom, but there's uh, an oil rig out front and it's going up and down. It's really beautiful uh, surroundings and really austere and really uh, creepy and uh, creates a whole world unto itself, which as we know and which as we've discussed in the podcast previously is one of the key uh, elements to making a great piece of horror. And for the first 45 to hour uh, of this film, I mean, you could, I think, safely say that it was. And this is very, very performance-driven, as it ha has to be in a way. It is uh, led by uh, one of the characters who is uh, Bobby Green, is played by Lonnie Chavis. And you'll know him from the somewhat maudlin, but I think overall uh, quite sublime at times, uh, TV drama, This Is Us. And he really leads things. And uh, there's these really juicy little tidbits and nuggets and little vignettes of... Uh, interesting little uh, means by which the kids try and escape and, and really uh, they uh, acquit themselves really, really well as they try and uh, elude their captors. And you have uh, an element where Bobby you know, tries to uh, call uh, call for uh, 911 and all he's got at his disposal is a, a rotary phone. And there's kind of a fun element where uh, the kidnapped... Uh, uh, par partner in crime there, well, not <laughs> Kevin, uh, has to sort of instruct him as to how to, uh, in, uh, you know, find a um, an outlet and to plug it in so he can call first responders. That's a kind of cutesy moment. Also, there's a little uh, 
I guess, um, uh, great or a little, yeah, I guess you would call it that, that uh, Kevin tries to open and splits open his uh, fingernail uh, quite surprisingly as he's trying to, uh, you know, elude uh, capture. He's got some kind of... Um, like thick lock that's around his ankle and he's been you know confined to the basement and he tries to get out it was really shocking and really well done and yeah it's amazing the extent to which you know, something so easily relatable and yet not fatal could be so impactful and so uh, stomach churning i mean all it is is a fingernail it's not like some sort of lucio falci uh, you know, um, stake through the eye like from the beyond or something. I mean, Fulci is known for his ocular gouging and whatnot, but this is something that was really, really amazingly impactful and really disgusting and caused lots of squirming in that. So when you have, obviously the film has a lot of balls, like from the get-go you have a kid who's knocked unconscious. You know, unfortunately, uh, things deteriorate toward the back of half of this film uh, which uh, had its release date in 2020 at uh, Fantastic Fest, but you, you have uh, the back end not being able to, uh, you know, uh, cash the check uh, that the first half had uh, written, and that's really a shame. And, and why this is the case is that there are... Um, there's different characters and antagonists introduced in the proceedings that whose histrionics and hysteria kind of undermine what has come before. Now, when you are so bold as to be able to show a kid who's KO'd and knocked unconscious, you would think you'd go that extra mile to maybe generate you know, that kind of terse, tense atmosphere that potentially this twosome could be... It could be part of some pedophile ring or some kind of that real harm could be inflicted on them. But from the get go, and I think to this film's debit, the two kidnappers really just say they try and placate the kids, and there's this element of a um, of uh, that they're in it for the money rather than in it to really bring harm upon the kids. And I think that takes away from uh, the proceedings here in order to. Uh, you know, probably to keep it on the straight and level and not to get an X or R rating, but I think it would have been really impactful considering they were willing to go that route of knocking out a kid and having a very shocking scene. In the first five minutes, they could have at least, uh, you know, uh, ratcheted up the terror and maybe, like I dare, dare I say it, uh, ratchet up the torture porn elements that uh, came to came to uh, prominence in the 2000s where you could have had uh, a captor and that would have also this is a type of film that uh, like I'm not fans of people being held captive in horror films I find it very uh, disturbing unless it's used uh, in a limited capacity like uh, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre where it's used for just evil uh, pure demonic thrills but I think in this case they could have could have used it to really make you further engage with uh, the uh, the two heroes of this because this is a different type of film. I mean, uh, your empathy and sympathy has been directed toward uh, kids rather than the expected adults uh, for whom you can sometimes not give two craps in the case of uh, some of the later Friday the 13th movies where they become almost interchangeable victims. But here, not only do you have a person of color, a young uh, African-American uh, kid, Bobby Green, but you have these, his body is almost kind of slight and, and uh, 
you know, a little bit wimpy and a less uh, resourceful and you have this twosome uh, in whom you have to, you know, invest uh, your empathy and sympathy and it uh, turns this horror experience on its head as does uh, later introductions of the uh, antagonist down the line, which becomes really, really surprising and again, really shocking and really really impactful and really daring and something you've never seen before. Now, toward the end, when the law enforcement eventually does show up, I mean, there's an element of predictability and a uh, lunk-headed, almost like uh, as subtle as a, you know, a ball-peen hammer smashing a, a uh, two-by-four or something. Like, it's just the elements of just uh, over-the-top, uh, just cheesiness that uh, belies the preceding hour of uh, repeated locked doors and uh, creaky hallways and long dark vistas and the, the horror capital that it is built up in almost in a Kubrick, Kubrickian uh, way in the, the Shining and I, I mentioned the Shining in, so, in that there's a direct callback to uh, Jack Nicholson as a, as a Mr. Torrance, uh, calling out obviously uh, <laughs> the late show Johnny Carson. Here's Johnny as he uh, busts through the door to uh, attack uh, Shelley Duvall with an axe. I mean, just to even to reproduce that uh, is an element of, uh, I guess, uh, pop culture, you know, en courant pop culture to the, the stuff that really took your took you out of the proceedings like my, my wife frequently complains that if there's someone who's too you know a-list in a horror film it almost takes you out of the proceedings because as we all many of us came of age in the golden era of horror and frequently the films would be populated with nobodies obviously as a cost-saving measure and uh, when you have um, you know uh, uh, John Krasinski from The Office walking around and whatever that movie is in uh, it's it's almost a, it's escaped me now the one that's set in the one that's in a complete silence there um, is it called the quiet ones it's, I, I don't know but it, t it can take you out of the proceedings but uh, I think anything that's like a obvious current reference I think can take away from something that uh, something's timelessness and something's ability to be perceived as such and that's why you get such uh, long lasting um, different generations, uh, I guess, uh, gravitating towards the, the likes of Suspiria, the Dario Argento Suspiria, and also The Shining, because you don't have anything that really traps it in a particular point in time. You know, there's another element which uh, I found a little off-putting, and so did the reviewers of Roger Ebert and his site, which was just a, a flash of a uh, Make America Great Again bumper sticker for that the killer had, and it's just like, it's just sort of took you out of it in a way that seemed very like they later referenced this uh, uh, the antagonist potential antipathy and uh, racism toward uh, kidnap kidnap victims it just didn't ring true or if if this was something they could have inferred from the surroundings that maybe one of these rural uh, backwoods types would be someone like that but it just seemed somehow like a uh, somewhat of a cheap shot somewhat out of place too because it yeah, there's not really any much of a correlation between voting habits, really, and propensity to commit crimes. I mean, what Democrats are younger and younger people commit crimes, but you'd have to be an idiot to infer causation from that correlation because Democrats don't... Being a Democrat doesn't make you commit a crime. It's kind of a silly thing. I mean, then you have your Ted Bundy, who has campaigned for a Republican. So he's a Republican. Who's a Democrat? All this, this silly ledger counting of who isn't and who is on the right side of history. It just doesn't seem like a 
seemed a little bit uh, vaguely ridiculous and took me out of it, but it wasn't that so much as the uh, female antagonist who later comes to bear on the proceedings in whom uh, nothing was invested, because if you're going to do this kind of thing and feature a very, very evil uh, female antagonist, then you should probably do it at the beginning and set up what would typically be the type of relationship they would have when you look at... Uh, some of our local evildoers here up in Ontario, which would be the Ken and Barbie killer, Paul Bernardo and uh, Carla Homolka, in which this twosome, uh, led by him, did all this evil doing. And that's typically how uh, couples uh, would operate. So when she sort of comes in here, uh, full of histrionics and wielding an axe, and it just, that part of it just uh, was rendered uh, silly. And it's a shame because the back end of this really, really, really fell apart. And uh, it really left uh, uh, it left a lot to be desired. And there are silly circumstances in which the antagonist has her finger cut off and is still running around and not maybe uh, feeling faint or uh, you know uh, being uh, lightheaded or falling down or bleeding out or anything. Just continuing on business as usual uh, uh, on this full adrenaline rush and running around like. You know, like some unstoppable sh uh, force like John Carpenter's The Shape. It was just a, just absolute, almost comical lunacy. And again, there was uh, repeated beats that happened prior in the pre preceding hour that were, I mean, almost frustrating, but uh, you could feel the frustration of the characters because you had these old-timey lock-from-the-inside uh, farmhouse doors, and uh, they kept locking and locking, and the uh, Bobby character couldn't get into different rooms. So it, it set up almost this kind of existential dread, in addition to the creaky corridors, and the, the house took on its own uh, vibe as well, almost uh, akin to burnt offerings that... Uh, you know, Oliver Reed star from the from the 80s, that type of film or house or yes, The Shining, where the, the house itself had a real personality too. And again, like you know, Bobby's frustration and uh, him being almost but not quite able to escape and law enforcement being ineffectual, all these terrific things. And then you get the silliness of the one kid being you know, stopped in his tracks by a shock collar. You know, lots of running around and shooting and shocking and and chasing and just uh, just uh, degenerating into sheer uh, almost vaudeville uh, running around like almost Benny Hill style just a uh, chase and it just didn't work when you have uh, an antagonist in whom nothing has been invested suddenly just appearing and you're you having to build up a bunch of uh, uh, you know, antipathy toward them because you had already these two kidnappers who were terrifically depicted. Uh, I was anticipating one to be like a out of his gourd, frothing at the mouth, spittle spewing uh, nut job that we've come to know and expect from these types of films. But their ordinary ordinariness. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, Hannah Arendt's uh, famous uh, banality of uh, evil observation, but these characters were as banal as they come, and that's what really ratcheted up the terror. And then to have suddenly this witch-like figure chasing them around, it just didn't do it for me toward the end. And as I wrote up on the site, like, I would have to give this, the beginning was a four-and-a-half-star film, and then the later half was a two. So you could almost split the difference. And it's, it's a film that could have gone really hard and could have stuck to its guns on the kidnapper front and could have really, really been something 
something very impactful with a few minor tweaks. I was thinking actually of a, of a survivalist horror that I recently podcasted that's also uh, straddled the thriller uh, horror uh, divide kind of, which was uh, Alone, which I thought was just a really compelling, you know, a cat and mouse chase between a kidnapper and a victim that taking place throughout the uh, uh, backwoods of Oregon and Washington State. And this creep who's uh, tailing this woman along a deserted mountain underpass and following her to tr truck stops and eventually kidnapping her and that. They have very similar uh, feels and very similar aesthetic and they're both exceptionally done to a certain extent. But again, the, the boy who, boy behind the door, I mean, it just fell a little bit short and it's just such a damn shame. And uh, one of the movies that Jeff and I lament having to podcast because with a few slight tweaks would have been absolutely fantastic because you got atmosphere to spare. I mean, there's shots of actual beauty in this and uh, Jeff and I have uh, alluded to the beauty of horror, but there's certain scenes where one of them that uh, have, has this terrific shot under this tree branch of the kid playing baseball. And there's another one where the sun beams in through a window onto the kidnapped Kevin. And it's just, just scenes of cinematic uh, beauty for this one. It just didn't ultimately come together in the way that I would really, really hoped. Now, uh, apparently the filmmakers really, and we're going to get into what we learned here, um, claimed to have based elements of the film on The Shining and The Goonies. And uh, it's kind of, yeah, I mean, it seems like any kid-centered movie um, or any kind of series, whether it's Stranger Things or whatever, invariably The Goonies comparisons are called out. I'm not sure to what extent that's true, but I mean, damn it's just so many conventions are upended in this film and then to have it just laid to waste in the back end with 25 and 20 35 minutes to spare just almost breaks my heart in a way so um many things i've learned here but um I am starting to really uh, ratchet up the uh, horror viewing now because in this part of the world, and this is something I probably should have uh, led the podcast with, but uh, the seasons are starting to change. There's a little nip in the air, despite it being like whatever, 25 degrees today or 80, whatever that is, Fahrenheit, really, really hot day, but still you can tell things are changing. And uh, there's a... Uh, in uh, Christian uh, theology, there's something called quietism, which is like a, you know, turning inward into yourself, uh, into your own citadel, as it were, and uh, really uh, f finding time to contemplate. And a far less ecumenical version of that is uh, how I treat uh, the fall and uh, horror films. I mean, the fall is really the ultimate time to get into horror. And I really, really am grateful for living in a place where the passage of time can be determined by the changing of the seasons and horror is best experienced in in you know i used to think in front of a live audience but i don't think as much i just think when there's that crackle in the air and the leaves are changing and it might have something to do with the iconic film halloween or maybe that is this is a really secular uh, almost a religious quasi-religious holiday but there's nothing that beats it and if you live in a in a climate that doesn't change like southern california or one of these places you really are missing out on some of the most amazing elements of horror because really uh, i admit i've watched quite a bit of horror over this past summer but i really dial things up to 11 uh, thanks nigel tufnell from spinal tap but i put things up to 11 in the fall and in uh, the winter for the which are the key uh, disproportionately uh, 
you know, in terms of viewing time, uh, key horror seasons. I mean, TIFF is around the corner, Toronto International Film Festival, Midnight Madness, all the great stuff. And hopefully our pals there over at Rue Morgue will be able to put on some kind of uh, Halloween production. I'm, I uh, have my eye on a, a concert that's taking place, uh, uh, speaking of uh, theology, over at one of the local churches here. And they're going to be doing, um, I think, a string quartet uh, versions of different horror themes it's gonna it's gonna be pretty good but there's lots of different things to see there's a uh, quirky local multi-millionaire from 150 years ago or something who built this crazy mansion on top of a hill called Casaloma and uh, last year that was uh, transformed into a haunted house and it's a great effect. It was really fantastic. So I'm looking forward to just going out and even on a much smaller scale, seeing what my neighbors have to offer because there's tons of creativity in this part of the city where I'm at. And uh, hopefully uh, people will really get out and be inspired by the looming Halloween season. So yeah, I uh, hope to uh, talk to everyone soon. And uh, the boy behind the door, I give it a reluctant uh, thumb and a half up, uh, speaking of uh, severed digits. <laughs> uh, Metacritic, it uh, weighs in at 65 out of 100. Uh, it seems about fair, worth checking out. I'm hoping to uh, catch Candyman at some point, but I'm really finding it uh, tough on the uh, just the logistics of it, but we'll see. That's something that I've had my eye on for quite a while, and frankly, is something that appeals to me way more than the uh, poorly titled and uh, given the last installment less, I guess, anticipation-filled than I might have hoped, Halloween Kills. And they have a lot to answer for after that 2018 monstrosity, which is, just gets worse the more I think about it and talk about it. But uh, looking forward to the horror season, looking forward to uh, everyone listening and taking part. If you have any suggestions, send them our way. We're at awful underscore movies on Twitter. You can uh, find us uh, on uh, Instagram and uh, everywhere, really. And continue to check out our podcast and we shall talk to you soon. Take care. Thank mm-hmm. you.